You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello, and welcome to the China Geopolitics podcast on this October 1st. It's otherwise known as National Day for China, marking the day the People's Republic of China was declared in 1949 when Mao Zedong stood before a crowd of 300,000 people in Tiananmen Square in Beijing and the newly created Chinese flag was unfurled. It's not just a holiday across mainland China. It's the beginning of what's known as Golden Week, when hundreds of millions of people normally head off on vacation to various tourist hotspots. But this year's Golden Week has lost some of its shine. Blackouts and power outages continue across mainland China as the nation struggles with the fundamental theory of economics posed by Adam Smith in 1776, supply and demand. We're going to check in with our Beijing bureau and hear from Sarah Zhang about what sounds like an unfreezing of diplomatic relations between China and the U.S. now that Meng Wanzhou has struck a deal with the U.S. Justice Department and returned to her family home in Shenzhen. And we'll drop in with our man in Brussels for an update on what sounds like a busy week for developments in the EU-China relationship. Finbar Birmingham has the drop on the results of the German election and what that means for Germany's multi-billion dollar trade relationship with China. And he's also got some very interesting news on this week's meeting between China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, and the EU's top diplomats. There's an increasing push on economic engagement with Taiwan, more talk of economic sanctions over Xinjiang, and the small matter of the nation of Lithuania angering Beijing over its attitude towards Chinese-made smartphones. I'm Chad Bray, arise ye workers from your slumber. Sarah Jung joins us from uh, Beijing. Sarah, it, if this was a normal day before the Nationals Day of the People's Republic of China, we would see all kinds of uh, preparations on the streets of Beijing. But let us ask, uh, given everything that's been going on recently, do you have power? Are you working by candlelight? How much power is left on your phone? It would be cool if I was working by candlelight. But no, um, in Beijing, we, we still have power, even though, of course, everyone is talking about these power outages that are really dominating northeastern China. I mean, hearing stories about traffic lights not going out, people not being able to study, and just imagining if you're in a situation, if you're in a surgery room, for instance, and suddenly the, the power goes out. So that is quite scary. But here in Beijing, there are just some scheduled power outages for the next week or so. Um, and it's just for a few hours at a time, affecting certain districts, including the district where the SEMP office is in, in Taoyang, but still lights right now. So that's, that's good. But yeah, ahead of National Day, I think this year it's a little bit more muted, um, mostly because of COVID-19 concerns. So actually, we're hearing that students in Beijing were told at their schools that they can't actually leave the city during this holiday. Normally, this holiday is a huge you know, tourist extravaganza, everyone wants to travel around. But of course, this year, people are being told that they can't. But that doesn't mean that there won't be tourists who are traveling around. And a lot of people are expected to come into Beijing, especially now that the Universal Studios has opened in Beijing. So um, the, the Ministry of Culture and Tourism actually said that they expect more tourists to come around during this holiday, especially because there's pent up demand. Yeah. And, uh, you know, having lived through a few blackouts in New York City, I know how uh, how unnerving it can be when the power goes out uh, for an extended period of time. But I want to turn to sort of the ongoing uh, reaction to a story that's dominated the headlines in, in, the, in the last week or so. It, it's the return of uh, the Huawei CFO, uh, Ming 
Guizhou uh, to Shenzhen. And uh, you've been talking to people about this. And how is this sort of playing out in terms of U.S.-China relations right now and, and diplomacy? Can you tell me a little bit more about sort of what you're hearing behind the scenes? Sure. So I guess what's really interesting is that the Chinese side has been consistently emphasizing that the U.S. needs to drop its extradition request for Mwanjo. Um, it was one of the key items on the two list of demands that the uh, Chinese side gave to the U.S. earlier in July, when, if we remember, the U.S. Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, she came to Tianjin to meet with Chinese officials. Other things on the list include, you know, not suppressing Chinese companies, allowing Communist Party members to have visas to go to the U.S., uh, things like that. But it was quite interesting to see Mwanjo as one of those items. So what Chinese analysts are saying, the way that they're seeing this is that, okay, the U.S. is now extending some gestures of goodwill by eliminating this from the, the, the homework, I guess, that the Chinese side gave them. Of course, the U.S. side would say that the Department of Justice is an independent and, you know, they, they process this separately. But from the Chinese side point of view, they see this as another sign um, in a series of signs lately that the U.S. is really trying to, you know, get relations back on track which is, you know, what, what the, the list of demands were for. Um, China has been saying repeatedly that unless all of these demands are met, you know, they can't reverse course on, on this deteriorating relationship. Yeah, and at the same time, there's been sort of an ongoing discussion about uh, Xi Jinping and, and, and Joe Biden sort of meeting in person. You know, we had the phone call a few weeks ago. How has the return of, of being brought, um, you know, any sort of renewed sentiment about this? Are we hearing them talking about getting together again, possibly on the sidelines of an upcoming G7 or G20 meeting? There are a lot of expectations or, I guess, hopes maybe that that this can happen. Um, We've been looking at this for several months and everyone's saying, you know, they want it to happen because this needs to happen in order for this course correction in the relationship to happen. Um, But whether or not it can happen is still sort of unknown. Of course, having this Mwanjo hurdle cleared, that can maybe give more space for the Chinese side to be willing to extend some goodwill of their own and agree to this meeting. Because we know that she most likely will not be going to Italy for this meeting. So if he were to attend, it would be virtually, you know, they would have to arrange some sort of virtual bilateral talks. Whether there is enough momentum at this point on the Chinese side to agree to such a meeting, we don't know yet. But Chinese analysts, of course, are hopeful. And they're saying, you know, if the U.S. can extend more goodwill across more items on the list, then maybe that would be more and more likely. So we'll have to see. And speaking of Zoom links and and other high-level meetings that we're having lately in the world, um, I wanted to ask you about your latest story where where you're talking about two days of discussions between the U.S. Department of Defense and China's military. Could you tell us more about that? Sure. So the U.S. Department of Defense said uh, today that over the last two days on Tuesday and Wednesday, um, the U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for China, uh, Michael Chase, he met with or met virtually with um, his Chinese counterpart, Huang Xiaoping, which is he's the deputy director for the Chinese People's Liberation Army's Office for International Military Cooperation. Um, so this is the second time that they have talked in recent months. Last time it was in August. That was the first time actually that we've seen high level military talks resume between China and the U.S. since Biden uh, took office in January. So that was really 
key for them to reopen that channel of communication. We reported previously that before that, it was only mid-level uh, military communication. So it was, you know, the Chinese side liaising with the U.S. defense attache at the U.S. embassy in Beijing. So definitely a big deal that both sides want to maintain this high-level military communication channel, especially given all of the flashpoints and military risks that we're seeing in South China Sea, Taiwan Strait. There, you know, this is an important channel in the event that there would be any incident or any accidents that the two sides can make sure there aren't any miscalculations or misperceptions on the military side of things. Yeah, and it's quite important. We've talked about on the podcast before about how there's no sort of red phone between Beijing and and Washington as there was famously in the 80s between uh, the Soviet Union and, and the United States. This was sort of the first time that, that we've had the two sides sit down and speak since Joe Biden announced the AUKUS agreement and also the uh, sale of uh, nuclear submarines and long-range missiles to Australia. Uh, what's been the reaction sort of in state media? Have they been drawing any parallels about sort of what's happening with these meetings to the AUKUS agreement? Uh, what, what are you hearing? Actually, what's interesting about the AUKUS agreement is that they're drawing some connections now to CPTPP, which is, you know, the the revamped version of the Trans-Pacific Partnership that China has recently formally applied for. Obviously, AUKUS is Australia, the U.S., and the U.K., and Australia is also a part of the CPTPP, so they would have to you know, extend their support for China's admittance into the CPTPP. But China has been saying, and state media has been saying, you know, while Western countries like the U.S. and Australia, they're forming these small circles, they're trying to contain us, you know, they're engaging in this kind of Cold War-esque type of action. We, on the other hand, are, you know, trying to be part of these multilateral me- mechanisms. We're trying to engage with the rest of the world economically. So they're trying to draw that kind of a contrast. And Wang Yi was really stressing this in his recent calls over the last few days, especially to leaders in like Southeast Asia, for instance. He was saying, you know, AUKUS raises the risk of a new Cold War, nuclear proliferation, this kind of thing. And and so really putting the onus of these risks of military flashpoints and tensions on AUKUS and, and on these U.S. and other Western allied powers. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. Uh, But before we go, I I wanted to, as an American, I I wanted to ask you a little bit about sort of what's expected for National Day this year in China. At home, you know, we're used to baseball, hot dogs, a competitive eating contest because Americans are great at that, fireworks, and, you know, in Atlanta, the the Peachtree Road Race. But what are we expecting this year, particularly given China had a big party for the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party this year? It's going to be relatively more muted this year. Um, there's still going to be the traditional like flag raising ceremony at Tiananmen Square, but otherwise, people will probably just be staying at home, either going the capitalist route, planning to go to Universal Studios, or maybe the socialism with Chinese characteristics route, reading some Xi Jinping thoughts. Um, anything on that spectrum. <laughs> Well, excellent, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us, and and enjoy seeing Jaws at Universal Studios. I'm going to go see Harry Potter World, like go to Hogsmeade and drink some butterbeer or something. Thanks, Sarah, and have a great time. Thanks. Take care. Hey there, it's Jasmine, one of the podcast producers here at the South China Morning Post. A quick reminder for you that this week's Inside China podcast has an in-depth interview with our colleague Ian Young, based in Vancouver. 
He's talking about the three years he spent covering the Meng Wanzhou case and how the imprisonment of the two Michaels has changed Canada's relationship with China. Uh, I don't know if, if China's relations with Canada can ever go back to being the same. The relationship is so poor. The perception of China in, among the Canadian public is incredibly poor. You know, the, there's a very low tolerance, I think, for the Chinese government here in Canada. And I think that's going to weigh very, very heavily on the Trudeau government. You'll also hear from Josine about what happens next for Huawei. That's on this week's Inside China podcast. Well, as we move from our bureau in Beijing to our bureau in Brussels, which I assume is on some sort of Art Nouveau terrace, uh, where Finbar Birmingham files his reports from. Hello, Finbar. Welcome. <laughs> Hi, Chad. No Art Nouveau terrace here. I'm uh, huddled in a darkened room so that the sound quality is a, is a wee bit better, surrounded by pillows and soft furnishing. Well, well, we do appreciate that. It, it, it gives your voice a lovely, lovely sound. Now, let's start with the update from uh, the elections in Germany this week. You know, we, we've all been waiting, anticipating who's going to be elected and, and what this might mean for uh, Sino-German relations uh, with Angela Merkel out of the picture as chancellor. I think the first thing to say is she's not gone just yet. We knew this was going to be a close election. Um, what happened was the Social Democrats won the most votes ahead of the Conservative Party, of which Merkel has led for, uh, in government for 16 years. Now the Conservatives collapsed. They had their worst performance in election modern election history, and they're in disarray now. The candidate Armin Laschet is under pressure to uh, resign in his prime ministerial role in North Rhine-Westphalia. And, you know, they, they really could form a government with the numbers, but they don't really have a mandate. And no party has a majority. There are um, There's going to be a three-way coalition. Now, whether that's led by the SPD, the Social Democrats, or the CDU, the Conservatives will depend on who can cut the best deal with the other two parties. That's the Free Democrats and the, the Greens, the, the sort of the kingmakers in this election. And on Merkel, she's going to be around for another few months, the likelihood is, because it's going to take a long time to form a government. Uh, the last time out, they took months. Um, the pressure will be on because Germany is the president of the G7 uh, for 2022. So they really would want to have a government in place by the start of next year so that they can get their ducks in a row, uh, particularly on foreign policy, China included. We've discussed, I think, on the podcast before, we, we, we talked about the uh, with the, the two establishment parties, SPD and the CDU, there's likely to be minor tweaks to China policy. I don't think they really want to tear up how things have been going. Um, so it will depend on where the other two parties, the, the FDP and the Greens, how, how highly they prioritise taking a tougher China policy. If you look through the manifestos of all the parties, those are the two that really sort of hammer home that they want to, to change things up. The smart money is on the Greens getting the foreign ministry. You know, their priorities, however, are, you know, as the name suggests, with the environment and sustainability. But if they're both pushing the Free Democrats and the Greens on on China policy, then the chances are that maybe there will be a bit of a shift. Important to remember that throughout the Merkel era and before that, China policy has, however, not really resided in the foreign ministry, but with the chancellery. So we'll see what happens there. On the free Democrats, these are the pro-business free marketeers in Germany. They're very much sort of um, balls to the walls, capitalistic. 
but there's a weird dichotomy because they're also sort of very hawkish on China. They're not really in, in line with um, the sort of staunch business interests of, you know, keeping things with China ticking along as usual. They recognize that, you know, that there's a broad shift in how China has, has behaved. Um, they look to the Federation of German in- Industry, which I met with in Berlin a couple of weeks ago, and they told me that they support targeted sanctions on Chinese officials, something that five years ago would have been totally unheard of. Each of the main German political parties has an affiliated think tank. It's a bit of an unusual setup. They're all sort of funded by public sector, and they all have offices in Hong Kong and China. The Free Democrats shut its Hong Kong think tank office in September last year because of the national security law. They moved it to Taiwan. So I think this has had some bearing on their, on how they view the situation as well. Like all of these politically linked think tanks in Germany are readdressing their China exposure, and I think that might have some bearing on, uh, on the future China policy. Now, this will rumble for months, as I mentioned. We're going to have Merkel as a caretaker, and whether or not we'll, we'll have a government by the by Christmas will be the sort of something to watch. But um, it could rumble on for a wee while yet, Chad. Yeah, it, it is interesting because, you know, when it comes to Germany and, and Germany's economy, it's very much been focused on being open for business and, and being willing to work with a lot of different people, whether it's China, whether it's... Um, folks in, in Saudi Arabia and the Middle East and other countries. And so will we see, you know, someone like the Greens who have been quite vocal on their position on China, you know, really sort of shift policy? I mean, look, as I said, it depends on where their priorities are. I mean, they do want to see a shift in China policy. For example, if the Greens come into government, one of their main priorities is going to be, uh, you know, cleaning up the energy mix, making it a more sustainable economy, being less reliant on on fossil fuels. So they're going to be looking to renewable energy, solar panels. But at the same time, they're going to run into the same situation that the United States is facing, where Joe Biden wants to become carbon neutral by, you know, was it 2050? They want to boost solar by a huge amount, but they but they're reliant on solar panels from Xinjiang. So th- there will be a reckoning at some point, um, you know, if the Greens are holding the foreign ministry and they're also championing environmental policy, they're going to be faced with this dichotomy quite soon. You know, how can you do both things at the same time? How can you wean yourself off goods made in China, perhaps in Xinjiang or with some Xinjiang supply chain, and at the same time become a sustainable economy using solar energy. So these are the sorts of real politic challenges that the Greens are going to be faced with. They've been accused of being a little bit ideological and not realistic by their rivals. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that they've very much come towards closer to the centre than they would have done in the past and compared to some of the Green parties elsewhere in the world. But it's certainly a good question that we'll, we'll hopefully see answers to sooner rather than later. And and we just heard from Sarah in Beijing talking about a high-level meeting between American and Chinese military officials this week. But you've also been reporting on a high-level meeting of officials from the EU and China. What was on the agenda there? Yeah, this is uh, the, the strategic dialogue, as they call it, uh, between uh, the top well, not the top two diplomats, between Joseph Borrell, who's the EU's top diplomat, and Wang Yi, the foreign minister of China, who's not actually the top diplomat, that's Yang Jiechi. But they've talked throughout the past year, but this is a sort of a more formal summit, if you will. It's a sort of annual strategic dialogue that they've done for 11 years now. I got wind of this when it was on holiday last week, and um, we did a quick story, and it actually caused a bit of confusion because a few EU, EU diplomats said they didn't know this was happening. 
so they felt maybe Burrell was freelancing, that the European Commission wasn't really consulting with members. My understanding from somebody who very intimately involved in the organization is that um, it was arranged a month in advance. It was on the internally EU calendars and perhaps hadn't been noticed among the maelstrom of other information. The talks were cordial. They went on for three hours, I've heard, and they touched on most of the hot button topics of the day. Taiwan was in there, human rights, even AUKUS, you know, the, the sort of Australia, UK, US defense pact in the Pacific, China and the European Union, both standing on the sidelines there, but they're discussing it among themselves. Taiwan's an interesting one. It comes at a really interesting time. You know, the EU is under pressure from some members and from the parliament here to um, develop its ties with Taiwan. The commission itself in its Indo-Pacific strategy, which was released a couple of weeks ago, also says it wants to boost trade ties with Taiwan. And according to the European Union's readout from the meeting with Wang Yi, they said they do want to develop ties with Taiwan and this is in quote marks, without recognition of statehood. EU's basically saying to China, look, we are abiding by the one China principle, but we and our members have some freedom within that to do whatever we want. This is, I think, an allusion to without direct reference to the situation with Lithuania, which has really thrust Taiwan into the spotlight here. And I think that was the intention with, with what Lithuania has done here. Just as a recap for those who maybe haven't heard, the uh, the Lithuanian government agreed to open a Taiwanese representative office in Vilnius. Now, a lot of European countries have got Taiwan representation in, in their capitals, but they usually go by the name the Taipei representative office. So the Chinese kicked up about this in Beijing. They recalled their ambassador and they told Lithuania to do the same. They say that it is in breach of the One China Principle. The EU and Lithuania both say that it's not. But what it really has done is dragged the Taiwan situation into the spotlight here in Europe. A lot more people are talking about it. The European Parliament is demanding that the EU start talks on an investment agreement with the Commission. When the EU's 27 leaders meet in uh, the 27 member state leaders meet in Slovenia next week. It will be on the agenda. The Slovenian Prime Minister, Slovenia is the, the current president of the European Council on a six-month rotational basis. They have uh, sent a letter to the other members saying they want them to stand with Lithuania. I understand from Lithuania that they have some other irons in the fire here. They're really sort of poking the bear with regard to China. They don't, they don't want the status quo to be maintained. They want the EU to take a more uh, sort of aggressive stance against China. From a high-level source in, in Lithuania, I was told that they do have other things in the works, but they're holding back until the, this one calms down a wee bit. One irritation at a time was the exact quote that I was told. So these were all discussed with the EU and China the other day, as were issues like human rights, cooperation on things like climate change and so on, a lot of the usual sort of greatest hits. But the most interesting one, I think, was was around Taiwan and Lithuania. Yeah, and, and you know, we haven't discussed uh, really on the podcast, but, you know, w w speaking of irritants, you had uh, uh, Lithuania basically saying the other day that Chinese-made smartphones should be basically thrown away because of uh, security threats and potential spying. Now, that hasn't necessarily been proven by others, but certainly Lithuania has upped the, uh, up the ante, so to speak. 
Yeah, Lithuania has done, although this is not necessarily an exclusively Lithuania line. I mean, the security services and intelligence services in a number of European countries have sort of made similar intimations, if not such quotably direct lines, you know, from the top of the tree in the recent years. I think in Finland and Estonia, they've said similar things. I mean, Lithuania is saying what a lot of people in in European governments are thinking. Lithuania is fairly, it doesn't really depend on China for for trade and commerce. It has um, very, very low levels of um, commercial ties with China. They were part of this 17 plus one uh, grouping which China built um, a number of years ago with Central and Eastern European countries. And the aim was to increase trade and investment. Didn't really happen. Lithuania got a bit fed up and they said, look, this is not for us. You know, so Lithuania, from that stance, doesn't really have as much to lose, say, for example, as as much as Germany, which exports and imports a lot from China, Ireland, which is one, which is one of the only countries in the world which holds a trade surplus with China. A lot of these other countries, maybe some of their officials think along similar lines to Lithuania, but they just don't want to put their head above the parapet. We've already seen since Lithuania started opening its mouth on this one that they've had certain freight trains have been sort of uh, halted traveling from China to Lithuania. We've seen certain industries have export licenses revoked. So, you know, you do get punished if you start doing stuff like this. And I think Lithuania has made a calculation that it doesn't really doesn't really care. It's willing to take the punishment. And to follow up on that, I want to turn to sort of the U.S. and, and Europe. Um, they've been uh, talking about a, a technology trade council in the past few days, and, and you've been covering it. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, this is something that was first announced in June whenever Joe Biden came to Brussels in the midst of a diplomatic flurry. Uh, it was around the time of the G20, sorry, the G7 and the NATO summit. Um, he then came for an EU-US bilateral summit and they agreed that they would launch this trade and technology council. Um, it finally got off the ground in Pittsburgh. My colleague Mark Magnier was there. I was covering it from the EU side and we had the documents a few days in advance and we had a chance to go through them. And it wasn't really that much in terms of concrete deliverables. I mean, it's the, they're going to work together to sort of help strengthen their semiconductor supply chains. They're going to be working on things like joint AI projects and they have established um, 10 working groups to, to work on various areas, investment screening, export controls, clean energy and clean technology. There was a 17-page policy document or joint statement that had been doing the rounds and which was eventually released yesterday. China wasn't really wasn't mentioned in a single instance. However, it was sort of peppered with euphemistic references to China about non-market actors who distort world trade and, um, you know, people who are using misusing artificial intelligence. Uh, there was some bits in it about sort of social scoring systems and so on. So allusions to China and other authoritarian states without directly referring to them. The EU is quite clear that it doesn't see this, at least in its public statements and on background. They, they don't really want it to be pitched as something that's aimed at China, whereas I think the U.S. clearly sees this as something to contain China. You know, this is seen as a very important part of Joe Biden's multilateral strategy to deal with China while he's pursuing unilateral stuff at the same time. It ran into a few problems. There was some chatter that this might be cancelled because of the fallout from the AUKUS 
stuff. The French were pretty annoyed, obviously, about the loss of a massive submarine submarine contract. They threatened to, to cancel the summit itself. They also uh, were right up until Tuesday, I think, they were being very pernickety about the language around semiconductors and also about the timing of the next meeting. They eventually got something agreed that the language was a wee bit toned down on semiconductors, but I went through it side by side last night and there really wasn't much change from Monday's draft to the final document. So the French were kicking up a little bit of a fuss, but I don't think they really really altered it that much. At the same time, though, you know, we speak to diplomats in Europe, they think that it's a wee bit of an underwhelming thing. There's not really much in terms of concrete projects. We can say that they intend to do this and they aspire to do that, but we don't really know what they're actually going to do together. I don't think the Chinese would be terribly worried about it at this point, but, you know, if they start actually doing joint projects to wean themselves off certain industrial sectors in China and to build their own sort of armory and arsenals of, of trade and, and tech policy, then maybe that maybe gives Beijing something more to think about. Well, Finbar, we'll be looking forward to uh, more coverage from you and analysis on scmp.com, particularly about the uh, meeting coming up next week in Slovenia. Uh, so thanks for joining us and enjoy your uh, comfy cushions there in Brussels. Thanks, Chad. See you later. That's all for this week's podcast. Outside on the streets of Hong Kong, I can tell you, all is quiet on National Day. There's a lot of police standing around on empty streets and in public spaces. But as always, there's a lot going on here in the newsroom of the South China Morning Post. Keep up to date with the ongoing crisis surrounding Evergrande and its multi-billion dollar debts and the fallout on China's overheated property sector. And of course, you'll read Finbar's coverage of the upcoming EU summit in Slovenia. Check it all out on scmp.com. Follow the political economy team on Twitter at SEMP Economy. I'm at Chad Bray. We'll be seeing you. Bye for now.